This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Welcome to the Memphis Real Estate Investing and Real Estate Financial Planning Podcast. Learn all about investing in real estate in Memphis, Tennessee, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Memphis, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Memphis. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. All right, welcome everybody. This is James Orr, and today I'm excited. We've got a special guest. We've got Ryan Chaw, and he's going to talk to us about his unique real estate investing strategy, and I'm super excited to hear about what he's got going on there. So welcome, Ryan. How are you? Hey, thanks, James Orr. Excited to be on the podcast, and I'm honored. Thank you. Oh, you're very, very welcome. So tell me about this unique strategy. What's what's going on? Like, what, are you, uh, what have you been doing, and, and how does it work? Yeah, it's kind of like house hacking on steroids. Basically, we'll take a pretty large single family home or duplex and we'll add extra bedrooms to the house and rent out to a local college town. So typically these houses will have five or six bedrooms, uh, maybe seven or eight even, and a five or six bedroom house. And if we charge $600 a month per student, it ends up being $3,600 you know, a seven bedroom would be 4,200 or maybe even 5,000 for an eight bedroom house. And so we provide, you know, really good local student housing, uh, all amenities, um, really close to the campus. And, uh, you know, we just try to provide really great service and uh, keep our students safe. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so basically you're taking the normal house hacking strategy, which is buying a property that you can rent out part of it while you're living in the property is usually how we think about house hacking. And then so you're you're deciding to go ahead and take a property and then add additional bedrooms if you can, if it makes sense to do that, and then renting those out. And ideally, your niche is really student rentals to find something around a university, around a college town, and actually rent out to those guys. So is that yes. pretty much what you're doing? Exactly. Yeah. Mainly college town students, but we're also near hospitals sometimes. And so we have fellowships, okay. residencies, all of that. Uh, typically, uh, we also invest in their kind of low median home pricing type areas. So that actually increases our cash flow. And typically, our cash flow is anywhere from 2000 to 3500 a month uh, after all taxes, insurance and expenses on these okay. houses. And so, I mean, I've got so many questions. So um, let me let me first start about how you're acquiring these properties. What are you doing? Are you going in there with typically 20% down? Or are you doing like a 5% down where you're owner occupying them? And then you're staying in one of the bedrooms yourself? Like, what are you doing to acquire them? Yeah, so I did a 20, 25% down for the most part. Um, I've, I've done it where I bought like a second home and stayed in it for a bit and then rented it out afterwards. Um, that was more of a 10% down. I kind of had to do it out of necessity because I, I couldn't really um, come up with a full 20% at that sure. time. Um, but then I also take out HELOCs. I might do a cash out refi. And I'm also partnering up with uh, capital partners who are putting in the down payment for me. And then basically I do all the management work. Um, so growing and scaling that way as well. 
Okay. So you're basically, so some of the stuff you're doing is you're going to go in there and you're going to put 20% down or 25% down, and then you don't have to move into the property, assuming you're not moving into a lot of these properties. Is this, is this something you started like when you were in school or do you start this after school? Like what'd you do? Yeah. So when I graduated, I grad, I had, um, I graduated as a farm D, um, from my school in Stockton, California. And I just wanted to get started as soon as possible in real estate because I knew yeah. it's the best way to create generational wealth. Yeah. I had a grandpa who really killed it in a real estate, and he also helped cover part of my college tuition and my brothers as well. And so I realized that you know real estate's one of the best ways to build wealth for the generations. Yeah. And so you know I got started right away. I worked um, 14 hour days, 14, 15 hour days. I would work six or seven days a week. Um, at the retail pharmacy, as well as the hospital pharmacy to just save up as much money as I can. And so I basically started off purchasing one property a year, and I kept reinvesting that cash flow. So for the first six, seven years, six years or so, I didn't take on any partners, it was all my own um, W2 income, as well as cash flow for my properties and equity as well. Um, and then eventually I decided, you know, I could go scale much faster. So I partnered up and this year alone, I purchased eight properties. And you're still buying them with your own credit yourself. Are you, you're partnering and you're the primarily the credit guy when you kind of do those deals? Yeah, I usually do most of the marketing. Um, actually I partnered with my uncle. He put up the down payment for the first two houses, but then after that, we ended up doing more of a 50, 50 scenario because we were creating a lot of cash flow. You know, we wanted to reinvest it. And plus, you know, he was starting to help out and do a lot of the management piece as well. What are you doing for loans after you fill up your 10 loan spots? I assume you're over 10 at this point. I'm at eight. So oh, okay. I, I purposely did that because I still want to purchase my dream home and my maybe my beach house or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I want to save at least two just in case. Right. Otherwise, you run out of loans. You can't do a conventional loan anymore you know, you're kind of screwed, right? Well, so the good, what we the good do news now is, is sorry, the good news ahead. is for owner occupant properties, the 10 loan limit does not apply. So you could still oh, do actually, conventional financing over 10. The Where you get caught is if you have more than 10, you try to get your next investor property, then you get cut off. You need to go to some type of other, you know, non-conventional type finance. Right. I did actually use my owner occupied one right now. I'm, I'm house hacking this one, but yeah, totally, totally understand there. But yes, what we do is DSCR now. Um, and DSCR, you can use the rental income that the property will generate as long as it covers the debt, the anticipated mortgage payment, monthly mortgage payment, you you will be approved for a DSCR loan. It's like a one and a 1.1 times uh, usually the monthly mortgage. And are you seeing mostly 30-year fixed rate financing on those or are they going to be some type of adjustable rate mortgage with a balloon of something? 30-year fixed, yeah. I do okay, that's great. Fixed. Um, my last one is 8.125%. So okay. it's definitely, it's higher than the investor uh, conventional loan, but yeah. not by much because investor conventional loans, I think they're reaching high sevens, mid sevens right now, 7.5, yeah. 7.625, you know. Are you using there. like a local bank or a national bank to do those kind of DSCR? This is actually a national lender. Yeah. Okay. I found them through um, a network that I'm part of called GoBundance. Okay. Very cool. So I, you said you're managing the properties yourself. And since you're renting the students, are you trying to do like the, the classic, you know, get the parents to co-sign and you're doing like a year long lease, but they're really only there for nine months. Like, what are you doing for handling some of those traditional student rental type issues? Yeah, for sure. So 
I always do a lease. If I'm in the middle of the year, I'll do a lease until July 31st. And then from there, I'll do August to August leases. Um, because a lot of these people who are doing like fellowships and residencies, they're really not taking much summer off anyways. Yeah. Um, plus a lot of grad students, they're doing research during the summer, so they still need the place to stay. Um, with that being said, if they do not need it during the summer, they can always sublet it to another tenant, like a summer school tenant. And that happens just fine. I'm able to even help them out. I tell them, I'll, I can help you out during summer, although it is your still your primary responsibility. You know, I'll help you out. And I haven't really had issues not having like somebody not being able to find a subletter. Like okay. I would say nine times out of 10, they're able to find a subletter. And, um, and so are you pre-signing? I, I would say it depends. So the kids have several ways to pay the rent. They could take out student loans. They can take out, you know, they might have financial aid. They might have a job. They probably the most common way is their parents are covering the rent, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have the parents covering the rent, in that case, I will have them co-sign. And what's great about this method is you never have to deal with unpaid rent because what parent is going to just stop paying rent for their kids' lodging, right? <laughs> yes, likely, likely. <laughs> well, I've, I've known some crazy parents out there. Maybe you find one that's uh, willing to <laughs> right, let them As long as go. they have a good relationship. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so that's awesome. So you're, you're not really having the need to do the co-signer if you're getting student loans or financial aid because Correct. you think yeah, if they they're have, doing that. They demonstrate that the financial aid has a section for room and board, which, you know, is the case in a lot of cases. I've even had somebody who paid the full year, never yeah. stayed at the house, but the financial aid was covering it. So okay, said, might as well take it. Are you collecting the entire lease amount up front then, or are you collecting it as they pay out with the student loans? I don't even know how student loans work anymore. Yeah. So it's due on a monthly basis still. Uh, okay. Yeah. And does this, does the student loan stuff come out like all in one lump sum or does it come out in yeah, like usually monthly? It does. So come out like for the fall semester, there'll be a one lump sum and then there'll be a lump sum for spring. Usually um, it's around August timeframe or so that they'll get most of the funds. Okay. Or, or a like, little bit before. What's a typical like price of house you're doing with this strategy in your marketplace? Yeah. So where I'm investing now, I, I invest in California and out of state. So I have five in California. I have eight of them or nine of them out of state, um, one in Alabama, eight in Ohio. So the price in Alabama was 210000 We're renting that out for uh, $4,200 ish, a little bit more, I think $4,250 okay. uh, per month. And then for Ohio, I will buy the first one we bought was 210000 and we rented that, that out for Three, uh, $3,750 per month. So okay. the cash flow on that was around 2300 2500 a month. And the cash flow on the Alabama one is around, um, I think it's a little bit over 3000 a month or so. Okay. And when you're qualifying for the loans, is the lender using the student, like, like uh, the student rental income, or are they using more of a traditional rental income in order to qualify for the loan? Uh, yeah, so that's a very good question. So if you do a DSCR type loan um, to get qualified, they will estimate what the market rent is. They're not going to assume that you're going to rent by the room. Um, and sometimes like if you do a refinance through a DSCR, it, they prefer to have a traditional lease. So you would have to have everyone sign on like one lease. But for conventional, they're actually okay doing a refi and taking 75% of your rental income, usually 75, sometimes 100% if you actually report it on your tax returns. And as long as the conventional lenders, usually this is in most cases, as long as they see one-year leases, um, they will still take that rental income. Um, and they might take off 25% of it at most, but they'll still use it. 
for sure. Okay, that's super interesting. Have you ever had, because I assume you do some like teaching of this strategy to some of your kind of like students and or partners to kind of help people do this. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you, do you have people ever utilize like a variation of like a cross between the nomad real estate investing strategy of buying a property, moving in, living there for a year, and mm -hmm. then after the year, converting that to a rental and kind of repeating sequentially in order to acquire their rental properties that way? And of course, the benefit is the, you know, the 5% down owner occupant loan and, you know, uh, the better interest rates than you would get if you're doing like these DSCR and or investor type loans. Are you, do you have any students who are doing like the move into the property, live there for a year, maybe even while they're in school, get roommates and yeah. then convert that one and keep it as a student rental to kind of maximize it? Yeah, definitely. I actually had three students this year, at least that have done that strategy. They lived in it for a bit um, or maybe, you know, a year or at least a couple months. Right. And then yeah. they, they rented out to housemates and yeah. then that's how they got started essentially. Yeah. Um, and they're able to also put a lower down payment potentially. You do have to be careful with those regulations though. Um, <clears throat> generally you do have to stay in it for a year, right? Yep. Unless you have a really good reason not to, like you lost your job or you're switching sure. jobs, or maybe you had a, a, your mom, you had to take care of who's sick, whatever. Right. But um, generally speaking, yeah, if you do do a house hacking strategy, you want to stay in it for a year. And I'm actually doing that myself. Right now, um, this house that I'm living in, I have um, four other roommates or four other housemates. Yeah. Um, and so our, my rental income on this one is $36.50 per month, and my mortgage payment is $2,300. And I'm in Sacramento. So, so $36.50. So you're getting like $910 on average per roommate, essentially, in order to have someone living in that property. Is that about right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So nine sixty five for the largest room, um, eight fifty, eight seventy, um, and then eight thirty. And is this? And I assume you're. Are you including utilities in your rents, or are you like charging them utilities as well, pro rata? Yeah, it's separate. Yeah, it's okay. actually not included. Um, they will divide it by however many tenants there are at the house. Um, but I include, I will cover the vacant room. So if there is a vacancy, I will cover the utilities for that one room. Um, but like, let's say there's five people at the house, you know, the bill is, I don't know, 400 or something like that. Each person would pay maybe 80 bucks a month for utilities. Okay. Have you had any issues with filling a vacancy like mid semester or anything like that? Or like, if you don't fill it before the start of a school semester, it's a little harder to fill or anything like that? That's actually a great question as well. So a lot of people worry about that, but that's actually not the case uh, because there's always people coming into the college. In mm -hmm. fact, um, around now, September, October and November, you'll actually see a lot of international students coming in because they just had mm -hmm. their visas approved um, okay. and visas. They get approved anywhere from, you know, during the summer all the way until like December, basically. So you have all these students who are coming in finally after their visas approved and, you know, getting started in person learning right away but you know before that they had to get all that situated so you'll you'll see a lot of people coming in like that also if you're close by a hospital it really doesn't matter yeah. what the timing is um but with that being said there are going to be bigger like a big wave of students that will apply in april may and july um, and then for spring semester, you'll get a wave around, you know, November, December timeframe. So, and okay. so there's always people applying, you know, there's even summer school, right? They'll apply yeah. around March or so. Um, so you'll always get these kind of waves throughout. So don't, don't too, worry too much about the timing. <laughs> I actually purchased in the last year, I purchased pretty much a property every other month or so. 
Okay. Um, yeah, it was just throughout, and I we still filled them all, all the rooms. Yeah, okay. part of it is judging demand, though, too. You have to make sure you you figure out your market demand, and there's a lot of techniques to do that for sure. Yeah, are you doing your own property management? Yeah, actually, I do. I I do have this general contractor um, with my business partner, um, and he he does really great work. He's very reliable, and as long as I have, you know, we have that boots on the ground that we can count on that understands that we're out of state, you know, so he might have to go the extra mile to make things happen. You know, that, that once you have that one really good team player, um, you're, you're set. Okay. Yeah. Are you doing like house rules and are, are you like establishing those? Are you letting them kind of like rule themselves like Lord of Flies type of style? Or (laughs) or like, what what are you doing there for like, uh, you know, managing the, the house while you're away? Yeah, I mean, whoever whoever wins, right? No. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, so basically, I send out this kind of like a PDF um, PowerPoint, basically, that they all kind of can go through, and it lists out all the house rules, what's the Wi-Fi, what's trash day, all of that type of stuff, right? Okay. Or what do you do if you're locked out? Um, what's the lockbox code? Um, and yeah, basically, they get that right when they right before they move in. Okay. Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. And so they're doing all that stuff there and they're able to pretty much self-manage. Are, are you, how, how concerned or what do you do about like putting a new person into a house of four other strangers? Are, are you concerned about that or are you, how are you addressing? No, some not too much um, okay. for them. They're okay. It's, this is the reason why it's a good deal for them, right? Okay. The dormitories, they'll charge like a thousand nine hundred dollars or $1,200 for a room. And you'll be staying with somebody else. You'll be like bunking with someone, essentially, yes. right? Um, so you're going to have to wake up to their 7 a.m. alarm, even though you wanted to sleep in whatever on the weekend or yeah, whatever, right? And and you also have to pay for a meal plan on top of that. And so for a lot of students that are trying to save money and parents, right, they'd rather pay more like $600, $700, get their own private room, no bunk mate, right? Yep. And have all of this space and um, be able to choose their own meals, right? Rather than having to select a meal plan. Um, plus, they have a full-on kitchen. They have a backyard. They have parking that you don't have to pay for. Um, they don't have to climb like three flights of stairs to get to their dorm room, right? So it just it's very convenient for a lot of people. And it saves a ton of money. You're paying half the price for a lot more privacy. Yeah. Um, and so that's just, you know, a lot better. When I was in the dorms, I shared um, the bathroom, the communal bathroom was with 30 other students. Yeah. So <laughs> it yeah. definitely is an upgrade from that. Yeah. So is, are, do you keep a certain ratio of beds to baths? Are you doing like, hey, no more than, you know, one, like two bedrooms per bathroom? Are you trying to keep a ratio of that when you're Buying yeah, the houses. so the max number of bathroom uh, bedrooms that can go to a bathroom is three to one. Typically. Okay. Um, I know. I mean, I my my dad, for example, he had like six other siblings, or sorry, five other siblings, and um, basically they had to all share one bathroom, yeah. along with the parents. So it was uh, it was pretty messy. Um, but and and. In most cases, people are willing to share with just like two other people. They just yeah. have to coordinate the shower schedules. And honestly, most of them aren't home. They're usually in class or in lab or studying at the library, right? right. And so they're only using the, the restroom to shower and sleep, essentially. 
Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. So I know in, uh, and I'm sure this varies market to market, and I'm sure you do some research on this. In my particular market where I happen to live, we have a occupancy law. It's called the... Uh, yeah, two. It's called the two plus one rule, um, and so you can only have two people plus one additional person. Uh, the two unrelated, so two plus yeah. one unrelated person living in a particular property. Are you like checking that as you go and do it, or is is student housing like exempt from that rule, or what are you doing about that? Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, that's a very good question. You have to, we always have to bring that up because in certain markets they'll have these ordinances and they'll actually have cases where you know, student potentially was kicked out because the occupancy limit was mm-hmm. breached. So it's really important to be aware of the laws in your market. But yeah. with that being said, there are exceptions you can have. So there's something called like a change of use permit where you can change the use of your house from maybe a single family home to a boarding house or a rooming yeah. house. There's also a variance, uh, zoning variance. So you could pursue that and get yours um, basically as a special exception, since we're so close to the school, you know, and we're bringing in professional students, can we go ahead and do this? So, um, the other thing to keep in mind is that limit is per unit. So if you have like a duplex, you can still have, let's say there's three unrelated per unit, then that's six. If there's four unrelated, that's eight. And sometimes even, for example, University of Alabama, I know if you invest near there, they have this kind of zoning directly around the school that has up to five unrelated. And then yeah. past that um, zone, basically, I think it's four unrelated or something like that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you have to make sure you're keeping up with the zoning laws. But what I would do is contact a local real estate attorney and say, hey, this is what I want to do occupancy limits, you know, how, you know, what can we do about this, right? Because we're trying to offer, you know, really good student housing. These are professional students, you know, um, what's the difference between this versus somebody who has like an, I don't know, extended family, maybe they adopt like four kids, right? It's honestly, I think these laws are discriminatory. (laughs) Like, for example, if you adopted four kids, they're not related. I mean, by blood, right? Wouldn't that be considered against the law, right? In in our particular market, it's actually if they're if they're adopted by you, they count as being part of your family. But okay. I'm sure everyone is a little bit different. You got to go actually read the regulations. But in my okay. particular market, that's how it works. Sure, yeah. polygamy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that one. I, we, so I've not seen is, many of those here. <laughs> in my opinion, it's kind of inherently discriminatory. But I mean. Also, talk. you have to make sure you're in compliance with the law. So you yeah. have to talk to a real estate attorney who's an expert in that. And that's yeah. kind of their job to kind of make sure you, you're doing it correctly. Have you done this strategy outside like a local university or a local hospital sort of area? Like, have, have you tried this just in a random spot? I wouldn't say no, no, no. I wouldn't say that because uh, I definitely were, were very focused on providing really good student housing, right? Being okay. The best student housing provider. So we always want to be in a market that has a lot of like hospital positions or a really good college. Usually it's a top college. If you're thinking about like Ivy League colleges, maybe like John Hopkins or Princeton or whatever, right? Yeah. We don't have to be Ivy League, but we're still in the top like 200, 300 colleges usually. Yeah. Have you done traditional rentals before? Or has this been your strategy since day one? It's pretty much been my strategy since day one. My okay. grandpa did do traditional rentals. He had a sex set of um, six flats in San Francisco. And okay. so he, um, yeah, he rented out to families. He had so much trouble with that house. Um, 
like uh, a hoarder tenant, a tenant who would stomp on his, like the ceiling above him at like 3 a.m. <laughs> so like they're yeah. having like these parties at like 2 a.m. or something like that. So they're dancing at 2 a.m. So yeah, he had a lot of difficulty with that. The thing I, I like about students is especially high quality students, like juniors, seniors, grad students, they're really focused. Like they, they want to get that doctorate. They want yeah. to get that MBA, JD, MD, et cetera, engineering degree, whatever. So they're highly focused on their studies and they're going to um, generally take care of the house too. I mean, they don't want to live in a pigsty, most of them. Um, yeah. So they're going to be, you know, some of the best tenants you will ever have. In my opinion, some people think that, oh, it's a frat party or something like that. But honestly, yeah. I've had way better experiences with these tenants than, I, you know, my colleagues have, my grandpa's had, you know, my um, my relatives, whatever. Right. Yeah. And are you I'm doing some that. I'm assuming you're doing like little things to cater to this group, like, you know, keypad locks to let them in instead mm -hmm. of having to do separate keys. And you can yeah. remove one and like all that stuff that I'm sure you're you're kind of really focusing in on to cater to this group of, of students. Oh yeah. And all the amenities we provide to cater towards that. We have like a ring doorbell system and they have access to it so they can see when their packages are delivered. Um, okay. So that provides the safety. We have floodlights. We have study desks everywhere. Um, we have a, you know, study room potentially. Um, so yeah, it's basically very, very student friendly. Um, and, and you're that's really good students as well. You're furnishing the house to kind of get it ready for all this stuff. So you have like the, the central living room has got a TV and a couch and like furniture in there and, and study desks. I'm sure you just, just talked about as well. So you're doing a little bit of furnishing. What, is, what does it typically cost to furnish a student rental like this? Oh yeah. That's a great question. So it depends on what your budget is. You can yeah. furnish a whole house for less than $3,000 or less than 2000. Even if okay. you go to like, let's say Facebook marketplace, you can find um, kind of cheaper mattresses around $300 per uh, full-size mattress. So if you get like six of those, that's maybe like $1,800. And then the rest of it you get on Facebook Marketplace, that would be $2,500, for example, okay. um, for a six-bedroom place. Uh, but it's, it's kind of up to you. If you want to do what I do, and I, I kind of invest in pretty, really good furniture. I mean, it's it's cost-effective, but it's also really good. Yeah, I, I go to Amazon, Walmart, and Target, and Home Depot. Those are kind of like my go-to places and low yeah. as well. And then for kitchenware, you can actually save a lot of money on that. You don't need a fancy kitchenware set. You can just go to the Dollar Tree or in a 99 cent store and all the utensils will be like a dollar, right? Or okay. plates and, and cups will be a dollar, but it's still really good quality. Like I use it all the time, you know, the, yeah. my house. So like the, the amount of furnishing you're doing, you're providing like a bed, a, like a, a clothed dresser or something mm -hmm. like that in their rooms, the couch in the living room. I'm sure. Are you doing a TV? No, actually. You're, you're not I providing do, a TV, do a TV. Yes. That's up to them if they want to bring in their own TV. I, I want to encourage studying, right? I want this to be a very good, <laughs> you, quiet, You're the, you're the landlord that wants people. them to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no bear pong, you know. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, it's up to them. If they want to bring in the TV and do that, that's fine as well. Um, like, like I said, like I do keep a pretty good security deposit as well. So um, if, you know, something breaks and it's the student's fault, then yes, we could keep the security deposit. But in my seven and a half years of doing this, the 
probably the biggest expense I've ever had to replace was like a broken window and the tenant had to, you know, they covered all of that. Right. So are you doing, you're doing like one month's rent of security deposit or you're doing larger than that? Uh, one month rent for Ohio and Alabama and one and a half in California, because if you go past the limit, the state limit, you yeah. have to pay interest on it. So those are okay. the state limits. <laughs> and so, so you're doing the maximum, whatever you can in that particular marketplace um, after talking to the local attorney. Yeah. I got to look up California, but um, it's one and a, it was one and a half last time I checked. So when you help your students do this, are, are they doing it in their local marketplace? Or are you just saying, hey, look, these are the five markets we've determined are really good for doing this. And I don't care where you live. You can go invest in these markets. They're better for this particular model than other places. So this model works anywhere. Um, okay. I mean, I'm in California. I have five rentals in California. Yeah. I've probably made at least like I've, you know, every every house I've had has gone up at least a hundred thousand. So I've yeah. made at least a five hundred k just from the appreciation over sure. the seven years I've been doing this. And you know, that's because it's California, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it depends on what your goals are. If you're really going for the cash flow, you know, maybe California is not the best. You might be able to get like fifteen hundred. Actually, I did get somebody recently, um, last month who got like two thousand. 200 or something, but it was a $600,000 property, right? So you're not going to have as great of a return on it. Um, but still, with that being said, you can still cash flow 1000 to 1500 per month on, uh, on, uh, on the right properties in California, even during this time. Um, as far as out of state, it, you know, there's definitely a lot more opportunity, at least, you know, being in California, right? So I've, I've had a lot of people who were in the Bay Area, I think I have at least four or five well, yeah, over five, actually, over five clients who live in the Bay, but then they rented, or, you know, they bought out of state yeah. um, because they wanted that cash flow. But right. then again, I've also had a lot of people who purchase in-state, San Jose, Riverside, uh, UC San Bernardino, um, Stockton, uh, Sacramento, uh, Elk Grove. So, you know, it works everywhere. Yeah. Just like yeah, that's... more appreciation or cash flow. Totally. No, that that totally makes a lot of sense to me. Hey, um, are you like really comfortable with your deal analysis? Like, uh, if I if I really drill into some of the questions about how you analyze deals and ask you some questions about stuff, how comfortable are you with that? Yeah, yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, yeah. yeah so, when you do your deal analysis, what are you using for your vacancy number? Five percent or so. Okay, the first you're using... year, there's, there's going to be a little bit of vacancy potentially. There there could be. Like sometimes I get it filled within two weeks, but sometimes it could be a month might be a month and a half. Right. And that's pretty typical. So I'll put 5%, but I have back-to-back -back leases. Okay. So you're doing 5% for your vacancy number. What are you, what are you setting aside for maintenance on the property? And what do you include in maintenance? 1% of the total property price. So let's say it's like a $500,000 house. I'll set aside $5,000 a year or 300,000. I'll set aside 3000 a year. Okay. Um, that's for, I mean, there's appliances that break down all the time. Um, maybe a toilet, maybe some plumbing issues. Um, you know, rear every once in a while you have like a sewage line break or yep. replace a roof or replace a HVAC. And that's why I say it's really important you make at least like fifteen hundred dollars per month in cash flow on each property. Because let's say you're only making a hundred or let's say you're making two hundred dollars in cash flow, yep. you're only making like twenty four hundred a year. If you get a new roof that's fifteen thousand dollars, that's like I don't know. That's like 13, 15 years <laughs> of your cash flow just gone, right? That's right. It's so gone. like you have to at minimum be making like 1500 a month. And yeah. you know, most traditional rentals, you can't do that. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't do that, it's, it's not really worth pursuing because I mean, that's, 
you know, 1500 a month, it'll be only 10 months worth of cash flow, but then you're good for the next 30 years for that. Yeah. Route, right. It's a totally different picture. So um, very important, you know, not to leave half your money on the table. That's why I say renting by the room is the future, man. Co-living, <laughs> um, it's, it's saving people a lot of money, you know, yeah. or so they can save their down payment for the actual house they buy eventually. Um, and it's also a win-win situation because for you, you have enough cash flow to support the capital expenditures like your roof, your HVAC, the sewage line. Now, with that being said, you definitely want to do inspections like during the, the home inspection period because you want to catch all those things right away. I always do a sewage lateral line inspection pretty much no matter what, yep. unless it's like you know, 2000s or something like that or or newer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you want to catch all that stuff so you can negotiate with the seller and at least the seller can pay for half of it. And I've had um, a full roof paid for. I've had two full roofs paid for, actually. And I've had um, half the HVAC paid for. Um, but I've also had to replace roofs and HVACs. So yeah. So when... So let me dig into your maintenance a little bit. So you've you've included some things in here that I would normally consider like more of a capital expense on a property, but it seems like you name those as part of your maintenance. Do you have a separate capital expense allotment yeah, that you're using? I usually assume CapEx to be, I set aside like 10,000 or so, generally speaking. 10,000 per what period? Uh, I just at the beginning, just at the beginning. Okay. And, I, and then I also set aside, like I said, 3000 a year that will go towards landscaping, appliances, general maintenance, et cetera. And, and that's, that's your, that's your maintenance number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if that's like, you know, what you get from taking all the expenses that I've had over like five years or well, it's been seven years now, but I did an average over five years and I just divided and set and it turned out to be around 3000 per house ish. Okay. Um, yeah. And are you like, how often are you doing paint and carpet? How many turns do you typically get out of paint and carpet with a student rental? Oh Where yeah. So at the beginning I might replace um, some of the carpet if it's yeah. really messy. Uh, what's nice is uh, LVP, right? Is yeah. um, three to $4 per square foot. That's actually really, really, really cheap. Yeah. Um, I mean, a bedroom will be maybe 120 square foot. That's maybe 360 for materials. You know, your guy charges labor. It might be, I don't know, 600, 700. I mean, it should be, but it depends on who you use, obviously. If you have yeah. somebody with a license, they might want to charge more. Um, but you can have a handyman replace flooring. Okay. And so, so now going back to the deal analysis part, so we kind of got a better understanding of maintenance and CapEx and how you break that down. So as far as um, your personal expenses as being the owner of the property, I, I understand long-term rentals really, really well. I don't do any student rentals. What other expenses do you have on the property that you don't typically have on other rentals? Are there any utilities you're paying? Like what, like what is considered an additional expense that you don't normally have on like these long-term rentals? You know, it's it's very similar. Um, the utility bills will be higher, but it's actually it's divided among the tenants, right? Yeah. So you're still not paying it. Um, as far as maintenance, you do have to counsel them to do certain things that maybe somebody who has lived at a house for a long time might know. Um, yeah. But with that being said, even traditional long-term rentors, renters, they don't know things you know you would think they would know. But anyways. <laughs> um, there's certain maintenance things like um, any type of grease, like you're frying a bacon or whatever, you want to solidify it and pour it. Well, you pour it into a fat trapper. And then when it solidifies, you pour you put it in the trash can. Otherwise, if you pour it down your kitchen sink, that thing is going to clog, right? Yep. Same thing for hair and showers. That's a Happens all the time, right? <laughs> Got to get a hair catcher. Um, I also have a kitchen sink hair catcher as well. 
um, that I purchased that they can, you know, clear out when the hair yeah. gets uh, high. But, you know, if they don't do that, I would say six to months in, you'll probably have some sort of, oh, the, the shower's backing up. What do I do? Kind of yep. call, right? So yep. you have to train them how to do these things. And it's all part of kind of like the move-in instruction slash house rules. Are they mowing the lawn at your properties or are you doing that as a service for them? No, we do it as a, I do it as a service. So I pay for landscaping. I think the landlord generally should pay for landscaping. But I did have a group of students who are like, oh, can we save money and rent if we maintain the yard? Yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? So we knocked off $20 per student or $15 per student. And then they maintained the look, the yard for us. So we didn't. Okay. And so they're doing lawn mowing is there, or you're doing lawn mowing most in most cases, except for that one kind of road case yeah, where they're doing that it. one exception in like seven years. Yeah. What's, what's your lawn mowing usually run you? Uh, 60 to 90 a month. Um, a month? Okay. Yeah. If it's like more complicated, you know, really fancy like trees everywhere and all that, it might be yeah. more like, like 110 or a hundred. Yeah. And what are you doing for like snow removal? I'm sure Alabama probably doesn't get much snow. I don't know yeah. where you're in California. They get yeah, snow, but Ohio good. you do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely they're not. Uh, so I do provide a snow shovel, you know, for okay. projects. But The um, shovel or you actually provide snow removal? Uh, shovel and snow removal. So it depends. Like there's a huge blizzard, right? Obviously, I don't want the kids going out and shoveling snow. I'll tell yeah. them that, you know, but um, if it's, you know, light snow, they can kind of help snow, you know, remove the snow from at least the front of the house. Um, but with that being said, like if there's a blizzard and it's really bad, um, we'll get a snow removal guy out there. Okay. <laughs> and so you're manually, you're kind of manually managing all these things remotely. Like, mm -hmm. yes, the... but I do also have VAs and very soon I'm going to have okay. an executive assistant. Um, and we created SLPs, a scope of work for them and everything nice. already. So they're going to be taking on that project um, sometime next month or so. Um, just because it's out of state and everything, sure. I'm like, I, you know, it's nice to kind of offload some of those um, projects to. Yeah. Other people. Yeah. OK, that's really cool. So based on like the, the numbers you've gotten there, when you run your analysis, are you doing like a cash on cash analysis for your properties? Like, are you determining the cash cash number? Would you know yeah. what your cash on cash typically runs for these for you and your students in general? Yeah. I don't need to know yours specifically. Right. So a lot of times it'll be um, above 20%. So like, okay. I would say, you know, maybe on the low end, 20%. But on the high end, we've hit like 50% cash on cash returns. I know it sounds like is that real? You know, kind of raises red flags, but you know, yeah, we, we've, we've made that in some of our properties. Yeah. And when you do your calculation, I'm assuming you are taking into account vacancy and the maintenance numbers that we talked about. And I assume yeah. the CapEx numbers you're talking about. Yeah. You um, have to take into account all of that yeah. and utilities and stuff like that for those. So, yeah. Okay, good. So, so it sounds like there's some, there's some pretty good returns to be made here. Um, and at those rates, I mean, you know, paying off the property is, is, can be accelerated if you decide that's your strategy. If you want to go and reinvest things and pay down your loans, or you want to acquire additional units in parallel, I guess you could do that too. You save it for down payments. Yeah, and yeah exactly. I actually paid acquire. down my very first property uh, and then sold it for 437000 to buy seven other properties. So you re-leveraged. You basically went in, you bought properties, let it appreciate because we were in a very bull market You know, with the market yeah, going up exactly. last 10 years or so. It was my first house too, so seven years ago. So okay. I you know, significant amount of equity on that one. <laughs> yeah. And then you went and sold it. And then um, did you a 1031 or did you just kind of take the money, pay the taxes on it and then go out and redo it again? Yeah. You know, I would recommend 1031 if you can, um, but it did require reinvested all of it. And I wanted cash available because we know, 
you know, the economy, no one knows where the economy is going, but it's good to have cash on hand. So I, I wanted that cash. Um, so I was like, okay, let's just do this instead. Yeah. Are you a big reserve guy? Like, do you think a lot about reserves when you do your property stuff? Okay. I I always a hundred thousand in reserves where I'm at right now, at least a hundred thousand. Um, otherwise it's like, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff go down in houses right after two and a half years. Um, when you, I, I guess like at the beginning, if you have like four properties up to four properties, you know, you could probably get away with like 25, 30,000 in reserves or so, um, unless you want to put everything on a credit card and, and there are business credit cards, by the way, that'll do 0% for a year if, sure. if you're worried. And there's also HELOCs as well, um, which you don't have to take out until you use it. Um, but so I have all that. Um, but then when you get like, when you really scale, it's really important to keep a lot of capital in your pocket just because there's just things that come up. Um, and I I would say when you hit 10 properties, I would recommend having a good 80 to a hundred thousand kind of just as cash. So you think maybe as a HELOC, maybe as a HELOC. Yeah. So you think of it in terms of a fixed dollar amount and less so in terms of like the number of months of the actual expenses you have on all of your rental properties combined, like, uh, you know, like six months of reserves as an example versus your $25,000 in your account. You'd like to think of it in the dollar amount. Yeah, I usually do. Um, I think about what I might have to eventually replace on each property as well. Sure. Right. And so all of that kind of goes into deciding how much should we keep in reserves. Okay. So you're thinking you're merging reserves with your CapEx, your CapEx account. Yeah, yeah. So okay. a couple a couple of reasons too, like, you know, when and we've seen this recently, right? Banks are um what do you call um resolvent, what do you call it? they're insolvent? Insolvent, yeah. Yeah, that's the word. Silicon um, Valley banks every time. Right, about. exactly. And th- that's just how the banking system works, right? If everyone wants their money, they don't have it, right? Sure. That literally is the like the definition of modern day banking. So you know, what happened in 2008 is all these people who took out HELOCs and all that, all those banks started demanding, you know, all that money back, right? And so one thing we're doing is is pulling on some HELOCs and we're okay paying some of the interest on that sure. um, just for the um, the peace of mind to have that yeah. liquidity, right? Because it's if you like- pull it out and you put it in another bank, now they can't close the account. But if you if you um, paid off that HELOC or you don't use that HELOC, they can just decide to close that account. Totally. Uh, it's actually written in the HELOC contract in most cases too. So yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah if totally. You're a real estate investor, keep that in mind, especially during th- these times. Good. Well, I'm glad you're doing the reserves. I'm glad you're teaching the reserves thing. Let me ask you kind of like a follow-up question about reserves then. Are you taking into account your reserves as a drag on your cash on cash return on investment? Are you setting aside like saying, hey, I'm acquiring this property. I know I need to have six months of reserve. So my total amount invested is my down payment plus my closing costs, plus you know my rent ready costs in order to get all the stuff ready to do it. Plus now I know that I've got six months reserve. So I'm taking that into account when I do my analysis. Um, no, I'm not including that in the cash on cash return, if that's what you're yeah. asking, because I'm not dividing by 100000 in reserves. I'm dividing by the down payment plus the closing costs, plus the renovation costs. Yeah. And, and I guess when you have 100000 that you're spreading out across 10 properties, you probably wouldn't allocate the full 100000 to a new purchase anyway. But yeah. I was thinking if you do that, like say, hey, you know, in order to acquire this new property, the lender is going to require I have six months worth of reserves for this particular new property that I'm doing. So I'm going to I'm going to yeah. I'm going to say, hey, look, you know, I'm setting aside the six months of money. I need this money in order to make the investment. So in order to calculate my true 
cash on cash return on investment, I really do need to take into account that I got this six months worth of reserves drag. Yeah. Yeah, and I can sure. I can count that these six months of reserves is in whatever it is, you know, um, you know, your your savings account or yeah, your CD yeah. or or the stock market, even if you're yeah. if you're willing to keep that kind of like there. And you can count that return as part of your overall return, but you're not. When you're saying you're doing your cash on cash number to the 20% or whatever the really rough number we think you can do for, you know, it's a range, obviously, but you're not taking that into account there, right? Right, right. Not the reserves. Um, But what's cool about reserves is like when you're getting approved and everything, you could still use like your 401k. They usually can only use like 50% of it, though. Um, And then for stocks, they might do 100% or they might do 75%. It really depends on what lender you use. But keep in mind, you can also use your retirement funds as quote unquote, you know, those six months reserves. Right. Yeah. 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 That totally makes sense to me. All right, cool. You know, I asked you this question. I don't know if I got a if we're oh, a little, a little over the place. No, oh, yeah, no, no. No I, I just sorry. I was thinking about it again. I made a list of some questions. So yeah. when we talked about the turns for paint and carpet, how often are you doing paint and carpet in uh in these kind of student rentals? Yeah, it depends on what area you're in. I've definitely invested in rougher areas. So, you know, sometimes you get uh tenants that didn't take care of the property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might have to do a whole house painting, but it really depends on what neighborhood, man. I mean, there's something called crimegrade.org. You can look on there. It's, I would say it's pretty accurate for reporting, you know, what areas have a higher crime versus others potentially. Um, And then if you invest in more like yellow or green areas, you'll have houses that are probably more well kept together Mm because it's just, you know, everyone's high income there. They're keeping... You know, they're paying money to repair their properties as they go along. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've also bought ones where we've had to, you know, do a whole house, you know, like new flooring, new painting for every single room. So, yeah. And so like how frequently, though, is it like every three years? I mean, I realize there's a range, but is it like on the low end, you should be able to get two years at a minimum, even if it's in a rough neighborhood. And then in the really nice ones, you may be able to do it for five years or six oh, years. Oh, or- I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um. Ever since we've replaced with the LVP, that that's a very good um, product. So we haven't had to replace it a second time over okay. the, like eight years, seven and a half to eight years I've been doing it. Uh, as far as painting, we might do touch-up painting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great, like if you can keep the paint can, right? And sometimes the previous owner does keep the paint can yep. uh, because you don't want to try to match the paint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, that that's mainly like touch-up stuff. So okay, yeah, you know, I don't know if I asked you about this. Do you years. do you have any parking issues, or do you like issue parking yeah, spots? That's a good point. Yeah. So one thing I don't do is invest in HOA neighborhoods because HOA is another level of government. Um, they could say like literally hey, we don't allow renters anymore. And they could okay. be like that, you know, because yep. it's they're they're fast with their decisions. And mm-hmm. it's not like the city where they have to go through this whole approval process, right? Um, so I never invest in their HOA because, you know, they could limit parking spaces, all that type of stuff as well. And so it's really important for me to make sure when I purchase a property that there's enough um, like street parking available or, or maybe there's a large pavement or garage that I can park a lot of cars at. Um, okay. I always assess that. It's very important to look at that. And usually I try to have enough parking for five cars at least. Okay. Um, but with that being said, I'm so close to the school that um, I would say half the students will either bike or walk or take a shuttle. And oh, okay. that's another good point. Um, if you're nearby a shuttle stop, that's a huge um, benefit as well. for safety. Okay. If you can buy, I... if you can buy near there. 
how are you dealing with two related issues in my mind, at least, how are you dealing with mixed gender in the houses? Like, is it all boys, all girls? Are you, you don't really care. They have to, they're adults they need to take care of themselves. Yeah. And then the second follow-up question related to that is how do you deal with boyfriends, girlfriends staying over at the properties? Oh, that's a great one. Uh, the default is co-ed. The default will always be co-ed because you're, you know, it's 50, 50 essentially for, yeah. for females and males. Um, but with that being said, there's a lot of different cultures out there. Um, for example, like Indian culture, the girls aren't supposed to be living with their guys until they're married. That's mm-hmm. just culture for all yeah. things, right? It's a cultural restriction. So um, for those you know, tenants, they'll say like, we prefer to stay with other females. And so it's really important. You're not like being discriminatory. So like right. in your ad, you cannot say like females only at this household, right? Right. That's- discriminatory but you can say like hey we have a group of girls that want to stay with other girls you know can we match them up and so i'll have like one house that's like i'll put all the females at at the house because they all want to stay at an all-female house right and obviously we work it out together with them and everything and then i'll have a co-ed house i'll have houses that are all guys well i just try to figure out how to best match them up because yeah kind of I kind of have a little bit of a questionnaire, you know, like what kind of roommate do you want to stay with? Do you prefer co-ed, all females, whatever? And then I'll I'll match them up accordingly. It's kind of like how colleges will do that, like freshman year. um, You know, what are your what what qualities in the roommate are you looking for? Yeah. And so you're doing that level of like almost selection and pre-screening yeah, yeah. For it's tenants. on my uh google form i have an intake form um okay. you know what year of you what what are your preferences what room are you preferring a larger one a smaller one all of that type of oh, move-in date of course um so all of that information is on the google form that i sent out okay are there any questions i didn't ask that like you normally get that are like hey uh hey i'm, I'm gonna do this thing but what about this thing you know like did i miss any crazy ones um i would say no, I mean, I think you co- you are very comprehensive for sure. Um, I would say the keys to success in this industry yeah. is definitely, I think in general though too, is there's, I think there's always three elements to uh, real estate. Uh, the mm-hmm. first one is the numbers, like getting the math right, getting the deal correct, uh, making sure you have your ROI and all of that. The second one is um, teams. So making sure you really establish a really good team in whatever market that you're investing in, right? Um, and then the last one is, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm trying to remember what. <laughs> That's all you uh, need. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> need I your numbers in your team, things. then you're good. Right, 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 right. Um, but oh, yeah, capital. That's the yeah. last. So those okay. are the three barriers. Um, capital, really important. So if you look at these big names like Grant Cardone, for example, yeah. or Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets, they're like they're raising tons of money from other people. They're using other people's money. Sure. They're not using their own, right? Um, that's how they scale. That's how you scale. You have to have a source of continued capital, whether it be your W-2, whether you have capital partners, whether you use creative financing by tapping into equity on your house, you have to solve the capital barrier. Because number one thing people say when they buy ask to buy a house, they say, oh, I don't have enough money. Well, you have to figure out how to get that money. Then you have to bag, borrow, steal, and the, uh, that's the phrase, right? You right. have to you have to solve the capital problem. The second one is the the uh, team problem, which is um, you you got to have people you can rely on. And then the last one, like I said, was the the deal the deal problem, like making sure you're the deal. Uh, you know, you have to know the numbers, you have to know the math, you have to um, be able to anticipate when you have to um, you know potentially replace something down the road 
anticipate potential uh, problems on the house down the road based off of what you're seeing from the inspection, like red flags and all of that. Yeah, totally. That's great. So when you like help your students out, like what are you, what are you doing? Is it, is it a standard thing you're doing? Do you have like a lot of variation? Is, is it like coaching? Is it just information? Like what are you, how are you assisting your students? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for those who are interested in student housing or creating a student housing business for themselves, um, I provide a six month program. It's one-on-one coaching uh, through Zoom, just like this. Uh, and it's 30 minutes to an hour calls usually every other month or every other week. Sorry. Um, and at the beginning, we kind of meet weekly as well. And we just go A through Z. Um, market demand or market analysis, demand, uh, deal analysis, uh, renovations and negotiations, uh, marketing, and then how to create like a management system for it as well. Okay. Um, and yeah, all of that all rolled into kind of like a six month program. And um, I've had clients, I've had over 50 clients. I want to say we've been at least 20 different states already, um, nice. all across the US. And, you know, you can invest locally. I have, I would say at least 75% of my students invest locally. Okay. Um, and so I've had like at least, I, I think I had like 12 clients in California. You know, I've had clients all over the US for sure. So okay. it works awesome. in every market. Well, that's really cool. So, uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Is there any last minute thing you want to do? I'll definitely put the link. You're, you're, you have something for uh, people that are interested in learning more about this. I'll put that link in there. Did you want to put out a, a web address or a phone number on the audio oh, yeah, as yeah, well? For sure. Yeah. yeah. So my uh, the best way to reach me if you're interested in student housing, um, I provide this free PDF guide that kind of gets you started on it and, yeah. you know, shows you it compared to other methods. Um, that's at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com backslash guide. So that's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. And newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. And you'll also get, uh, if you sign up for that PDF, uh, you'll get regular emails from me about all the mistakes I've made, some of the things I'm doing currently, some of the strategies I found work really, really well. Um, And yeah, it's just free information. That's awesome. I do appreciate it, Ryan. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge about this uh, student housing stuff. I think this is a, a great strategy for those that definitely are having some challenges doing cash flow in their in their marketplace with home prices having gone up really rapidly in the last decade or so. And interest rates are up a lot in the last year and a half. And rents are up, but not quite enough to kind of counteract those really high prices and those really high interest rates. So this is I a great you. strategy, great solution for someone who's struggling to get cash flow and you know for doing a little bit more work. I don't think you're you're uh, you're up all night doing your management of your of your student rentals, but uh, it's probably a little bit more than just a regular property management job, but not oh, yeah. that much. Up more. until last month, I was still working my pharmacist job at uh, 32 hours, so I yeah, was all on the side. Yeah, yeah. How like what do you think you put in like uh, on average for a typical property? Like, what's a typical property management month look like for you in terms? Yeah, of at just the beginning, time? it depends if it's like at the beginning or later on, right? Yeah. But at the beginning, probably three or four hours a week or so, um, just you know to go through that whole process. But once you have your tenants in and everything, less than two hours a week. Yeah, average. yeah, and, and yeah. so you're really you're trading a little bit of time for a lot more cash flow on your rental property. And so you can almost say, look, you know, cash flow on this property, if I wasn't doing this would have been whatever it is, $200 a month. But because I'm doing this little extra work now, make an extra thousand or $1,500 a month in in cash flow on this. And you divide that by the number of extra hours you work and you're still making, you know, whatever it is, 200 bucks an hour. I'm just making numbers. The return on time invested is insane for, for, you know, leverage, uh, 
assets, right? So think about this way. If you get like four of these properties, they're cash flowing 2,2500 a month. You could be made, you, you, I mean, this is like not, not everyone, right. It'll depend on your market. Yeah. Got a caveat, but like, you know, you could, you could very well buy four properties, uh, making 8,000 to 10,000 a month in cash flow. And how much time would you put in? Let's say it's two hours per property times four properties. You're paying, you're, you're putting in eight hours a week, you know, one work day to make 10,000 a month. Yep. Right. I mean, it's like, not right? bad at all. <laughs> I mean, you, you do that, you acquire your four properties, especially if you do something where you, you live in the property, you don't even have to have the roommates the first year you live in it. You literally can live in the property just yourself, um, you know, yeah. not rent it out at all. Then when you move out at the end of the year, then you convert it to a student rental and you put, you know, 5% down each time you acquire one of these with a conventional loan or maybe even nothing down to a USDA or VA loan or three and a half percent down FHA in the first one. And then you got yeah. these, you know, for 20% down on one property. If you do it over four years where you put 5% down each time and move into the property, live there for a year and then convert it to a rental for the amount of you had for one down payment on one rental property. Now you acquired four of these and you got $8,000 a month in cash flow. I mean, if you can do the $2,000 from the rentals and, uh, and you're done. I mean, a four year process, you acquire it all and you're ready to go with your student rental empire and you do a little part time until you get a little bit more cash flow. Then you hire the property manager. You hire like a VA or two to kind of uh, oversee the whole the whole business for you. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, That's work it. on that team. Right. So it's only <laughs> those three things. Right. Get the get the math done uh, down, uh, get the capital problem solved and then get the team problem solved. Or yeah. The system slash team problem. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I really do appreciate it, Ryan. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great having you. Uh, thanks so much. Bye-bye for now. Thanks, James. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates, cash flow on rental properties in Memphis is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rentals. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent, lender, or professional in Memphis that wants to help our real estate investor listeners, consider reaching out to learn about collaboration opportunities with this podcast. We'd love to add more value to our listeners by having you assist our investors buy, sell, and finance their real estate investments. See the show notes to schedule a call to discuss collaboration opportunities.